Hey, everybody. Good afternoon. <laughs> Ian, how long has it been? It has been, I think, at least six months, maybe longer. This maybe more like nine months. This is atrocious. What, what have it we been atrocious. doing? Where have what we been? What happened, Ian? Tell me, what happened? Why did it fall apart? Was it something um, I said? It was, it was something you said, something you did. I couldn't bear to look at you, not for these not last nine months. <laughs> I'm sorry. Forgive me. We're back. We are back. So it's going to be back, guys. Um, we don't have anybody live joining us right now. We bumped up the time about an hour, but uh, we're pu publishing on Facebook, and hopefully we'll get a few people live. Maybe a few people uh, will join us. What do you think, Ian? Do you think we'll get a live viewer today? Maybe. I'm actually tagging some of my some of the some of the old regulars uh, to see if they're around. Perfect. Well, while you're doing that, um, so Ian, what have you been? Um, Ian, I'll, I'll I'll share what I've been up to you while you're doing that, and then um, I'm sure everybody wants to hear about you too. So, uh, so uh, Rachel and I a couple months ago felt like God was calling us to plant a church in Clarksville, Tennessee. And uh, it's been crazy. Clarksville has the second largest military base in the world in Clarksville. And it also has the fastest growing state college as well. So it's going to be the third largest city in Tennessee. Um, it's been a crazy couple months. We got assessed as church planners. Um, and uh, we are on the full support raising train right now at Clarksville and start a new church. So that's, uh, that's what we've been up to the past six to nine months. Ian, what about you? Well, mostly I've been uh, reaching out in the city of Annapolis, uh, forming uh, meaningful connections with a whole bunch of people. Uh, I got taken on. Uh, did, I, did, I tell, did I tell the Spoken UCS community about this? That I became the chaplain to the Lutheran Mission Society, where I lead worship once a week for a community of at-risk people, those who are vulnerable, homeless, addicted, etc. Um, I also uh, began uh, working two Sundays a month with a local Anglican congregation through whom I am discerning my call to the priesthood, uh, and that's been going really well. Um, yeah, mostly, mostly carrying on serving faithfully, um, having people over on a regular basis, and uh, discerning my way into uh, holy orders. That's wonderful, my friend. That's awesome. And you know what's awesome, too, is that I have met probably four or five people that are a part of the Anglin Anglican Church down here uh -huh. in uh, Tennessee. And uh, a couple of them have become very close friends. I've got a few of them that are pursuing ordination in the Anglican Church right now, mm -hmm. um, who are pastors, who are friends. And um, it's been quite wonderful, and it's been actually really cool to see. There's a guy named Dan Scott, who's just a wonderful man that I've heard such great things about. I haven't had a chance to meet him yet, but he got ordained as a bishop the past few months ago in the Anglican Church. And so he's been garnering support for the Anglican Church in Nashville. Oh, wow. Who? A guy named Dan Scott. He was ordained a few months ago. The African bishops came over yeah, and ordained Dan him. Scott Bishop. Who are you? What diocese are you with? Ian's looking it up because we've got it. I am looking it up. Yeah, and I've heard like he's a mentor to some of my friends down here, 
and I've heard he's just like a wonderful man of God and really, really cool dude. So, but we have got cigars that are waiting to be smoked and topics that are waiting to be discussed. So let yes. me talk about um, let me talk about our cigars. So I told Ian when we are coming back from the grave with smoking issues that we've got to have a good cigar to celebrate. So um, with that, we're getting a Gurkha Cellar Reserve. So this is what it looks like. Um, it is a wonderful, wonderful cigar, a little bit more high end, um, at least for me, than what uh, we're typically used to smoking. Um, Ian, you've got a Koi. What's that? Don't laugh. <laughs> it also looks like it has a. It also looks like it has a poop emoji on the top, doesn't it? it does a little bit like a poop emoji. <laughs> That's so great. That's so great. But yes, how it goes. It is, and um, and uh, I've got uh, mine. <laughs> For those of you who are listening, there is a notable size difference in the in the length of cigar, but uh, we're not going to mention any inferences that we would draw from that. Right, of course, because, because we're good Christian these. pastors, right? Right, right, of course. All right, so Ian, as, as you're lighting and cutting, um, Gurkha Cellar Reserve 15. Do, does one um, cut this when it's got this twisty you, bit on the end? Yes, you do, but you probably want to either guillotine it or V-cut it, my friend. I have I've not got either of those. I V cut mine. So do you only have a punch? Yeah. Okay. This, so this pull the end off. Yeah. Just just give a quick pull. Oh no, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. Perfect. Is that what you? Is that all? You a don't little you... little torn though. There. Look. I mean, it's gonna kind of. That's yeah. Gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna suffer with that later. Yeah, it'll be all right though. Um, so now, uh, I, I happen to really really enjoy these uh, these kind of like um, pin. These sort of golf pin, uh, bowling pin looking, looking cigars with the strange shape and the sort of like the tipped end. Uh, they often, I don't know they have a really unique flavor to me. Yeah, didn't, uh, didn't I introduce you to those in one of our podcasts? You did, and I was, I was skeptical because it looked like a novelty shape. Because it didn't look like, didn't like a normal cigar. And I was very skeptical, but in retrospect, they were freaking delicious. Yeah, and I've been sold on them. So actually, um, the Gurkha Cellar Reserves, there's a couple different types. There's like a 12-year and a 15-year. But essentially what they are is um, they, they have reserved the tobacco. They, they put the tobacco pretty much on, on, in the back of a cellar somewhere for 15 years and let it age. And so uh, the oils have been soaking, um, the humidification, it has to stay humidified. Um, but with the humidification and with oils being the way that they are, it brings out a completely different textured cigar. So actually not the 15 year, but there's something called a Cellar Reserva Especial that um, is a little bit cheaper, $10 smoke. It's, Ian, it's a little bit larger than the cigar that you're currently smoking, but not as large as the one that I have. And uh, it's a perfect like 45 to an hour smoke and it's amazing. So, uh, so we, I've been really into it and I told Ian we got to celebrate on the way back. So Ian's got a, what's called a Koi Perfecto. The Perfecto, um, terminology is that capped end that you see um, on the cigar. So I'm going to put this actually up to the thing. So that's the capped end. That's what Perfecto is. Um, I've got what's called a Kraken XO. So it's just a difference in size. Um, top 10 cigar of the year. It's aged 15 years. It's actually aged in a barrel. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, Ian, what we want to do is pepper on the front end. 
Um, and uh, we want to do citrus towards the middle. And then towards the, the middle to end, we'll see some chocolate and nutty um, yeah. notes as well. So it's one of the yeah. highest rate cigars from Cigars International. So my, my first uh, puff has been great. Um, uh, I am slightly concerned about the, the lips. It just seems very oily and bitter. I wonder if that will make this uh, unpleasant experience further down. Well, I think as it I think as it goes to I think as it goes to fruition, I think we'll actually we'll see that not matter as much. Mine is falling a bit apart at the end of the cap. Actually, a big chunk chunk pop off. But uh, my first uh, My first puffs are, are good. I'm seeing a little bit of, I'm, I'm feeling a little bit of pepper. Yeah. But um, not as sharp or bitter. So I don't know how to describe that, but it's a little peppery, but it's not that bitter. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, like, it's, like, it's, like a, it's like a rush of spice on the roof of my mouth. Uh, medium draw. Uh, but that's that's only because because at the moment the opening is so small because it's still burning its way in through the right. uh, through the through the point. And I think as it as it grows, you just have to make sure everything gets burning evenly on the front end with these perfecto tips. Yep. Because if it doesn't burn even on the front end, it'll mess up your cigar. Bag. All right. So that's that. Um, we've got the cigars lit. We're face to face. Um, I don't know if we can tell if anybody's on live with us. They are not because they hate us. That's all right. I think there's a there, what, what's a good Smith's quote for that? Evan knows I'm miserable now. I don't know. <laughs> there you go. All right, so Ian, what are we talking about today? Today we are talking about you. My, my favorite friend. subject. I know, right? Everyone's favorite subject. <laughs> also, my favorite subject is talking about you. We are going to be talking Ooh. about. <laughs> we are going to be so ominous. Um, church planting. In a land of a thousand churches. Yeah. Church planting in America's Bible Belt. So <laughs> oh, I will I'm gonna I'm gonna be a natural skeptic for this podcast. Uh, yeah. uh, unlike my usual chipper, optimistic and upbeat self. <laughs> What Ian is that? I don't think I've ever met that Ian before. <laughs> he might he might even exist. I don't even know. Um, <laughs> so, so that's a Neverland, right? Right. Uh, but so I, I have I have some questions, and I think I think other people might have some questions about what it means to to start a church um, in um, in America or in. Uh, in um, uh, in the Bible Belt. Yeah, uh, I'm looking forward to it. Um, I sent Ian my prospectus for the church plant that uh, we brought to our church planting assessment uh, a couple months ago when we were being assessed as church planters, and uh, and so Ian has taken a look at it and has 
brought some things to the table, uh, some questions to ask. And uh, so I have no clue what he's going to ask me. This is completely off the cuff. And this is based on a prospectus that's a couple months old, actually. This is before we had the name of the church. This is before we actually started support raising. And so obviously, when you're in a church planning environment, things are changing pretty quickly. Uh, but uh, but I'm, I'm actually really excited to talk through some of this because it's been something that I've been thinking and talking through pretty much every single day for the past uh, three months. So it's something that's ingrained. So Ian, um, talk to me, man. What, do you, what are some of your thoughts about church planning and questions? So your very first sentence, I think it could do with some attack or at least some critique. <laughs> Please. Please, I welcome it, my friend. So on your very first end of your perspective, you say the following, and I quote, we live in a brave new world, a new cultural and spiritual terrain where things once considered of value are irrelevant. Absolute truth is seen as an archaic myth. Churches look more like monuments than mission agencies, and the people of God often feel out of place and out of touch with the changing world around them. Now my question is this, is this, is this true? Uh, is this sentence accurate? So as far as I read this, you are implying that uh, there has been some sort of sea change uh, in, in, in the culture of America or the culture of the West, which has seen um, uh, notions of truth become relativized mm -hmm. and religious institutions become marginalized. Yes, that's what I've seen. So the question is, is it true? <laughs> yeah. Or rather, prove it. Is that kind of what more you're asking? Yeah, yeah. I think we need to assess this statement a little bit. Sure. Uh, because from my vantage point, you know, I, I see that um, the Christian church has always, uh, always wrestled against a culture which has largely been ambivalent toward it. Yeah. Uh, always pursuing a vision of perfection, which is really beyond uh, the desire of, of, of the majority of secular people. Yeah. And uh, even when, you know, even when people assented to the church's ideas of absolute truth, rarely were they lived out. Um, and, and usually people were hypocrites. Yeah. So well, I'm, I'm starting to see things as, uh, to be as new as you're seeing them. Sure. Well, here's, here, here's where that's coming from. And, uh, and really it's coming from the shifting spiritual landscape in the Western culture. And that's really where I'm kind of hanging my hat on some of this idea of a brave new world. I just kind of use that as a, a common idiom. Of course, it references the... The, the book and the philosophies behind it. Um, but here's what happened, Ian. Up, upwards to about 60 years ago, um, the church used to be the community center. So when you think about how churches were built, um, how cities were built, and the things that people were doing, upwards to about 60 years ago, um, just right after World War II, for hundreds of years, what was the first thing that would happen in a community? What's the first building that would be erected? When you would start a city, uh, uh, when, you, when you would go to a new place, the very first thing that the colonists in America would do, what, what was the first thing they'd do? I have no idea. It was a church. Oh, yeah? Mm -hmm. And even in Europe, if you look at a map of Paris, if you look at a map of London, if you look at a map of 
um, at pretty much any of the old ancient cities, you'll almost always find a church at the center. Some places, and in a lot of places, especially in the Midwest, um, most roads actually end at the church as the center of the church. And that's why First Baptist churches are some of the longest standing institutions in the South because they built these buildings first. And so um, geographically even, the whole city that was created around a church. And not just physically and geographically, emotionally, um, cities and towns, especially in America, were created with the church and with some semblance of God at the center. Now, did these people understand gospel? Were they on mission for Jesus? Were they fully understanding of, uh, or, or biblical? I'm not saying, what I'm saying is, is that for hundreds of years, churches were the, were the center of a community. Indoor gathering spaces. Um, this is where politicians would debate. This is where um, community events would happen. And actually the pastor was the advocate for his community. And so he was not just the pastor of his parish or his church, he was the pastor of the community. And if you go up to Clarksville, for instance, and you look at their town's history, you'll actually notice that the pastors are, um, the pastors of the First Baptist Church of Clarksville, which had been around for 185 years, um, are at the center of Clarksville's history. So even in their public, publicly funded state history um, or county history, um, you'll see pastors are the center. And uh, the pastor played a prominent role. He was the advocate. He was the arbitrator. He was the representative of the people to the government. Um, and so there's this weird intertwining. This is why God and politics and the church are all intertwined right now in, in America. And we're trying to figure out what that looks like to separate. Um, so um, America is, is termed a Christian nation less because of the founding father's original intentions, um, but more because of the passive role of the local church in shaping American culture. And so I'm saying that there's a shift that happened. There's a shift in culture that happened um, starting in the 60s. There's a shift in Western civilization that happened, and especially with the advent of um, a bifurcation of responsibilities like jobs, like you don't go to your pastor anymore to be your mediator. Um, you don't go to the church as a local gathering space, you go to the local community center or the town hall. And so what started to happen is both geographically, politically, um, economically, spiritually, there has become a shift in how the culture perceives the role of the church. Right. And what that's done is it has removed the church as central to a community. So now you've got communities that are forming something because they don't believe that they need that. And so this is this brave new world that we're starting to see. And that's part of the shift is the shift is that the church is not the center of the community. The pastor, there's not one pastor of a community. There's not one first Baptist church anymore. There's many First Baptist churches. There's not, uh, there's not one central leader over a community, one central gathering place. Um, and so the role of the church is changing and the role of the pastor is changing in his community. And quite frankly, I don't think the church is keeping up. Now, I would, I would want to offer some, some critique of that. Because I, I think some of this language of the centrality of the church in the community is a lot newer than maybe you might think. 
I wonder if actually it comes from the era of the moral majority in the 80s and 90s, where um, Christians remarketed themselves and rebranded themselves as exactly that um, arbiters and custodians uh, of the culture uh, in order to justify their pursuing of their political ends. Uh, no, I don't think that would be a question of did they rewrite history, essentially? Did they rewrite history to say that they were these things back then when they really weren't? Right, and, that, and that's... No, but, I would disagree with that because I think history proves itself. History book, you go to a local church museum, I'm, just, I'm sorry, local museum um, for a county or a city, um, go outside and walk up a hundred yards to the center of Annapolis and you see church circle. Right. Where everything happened at the center of the community. So like you cannot ignore the role of a pastor in American history and church history um, or the role that the Puritans had. I mean, uh, from the very founding at Plymouth Rock, there has been churches, there has been pastors, they've been representatives in the community They've been representatives in government, um, and some of the advisors to the early founding fathers were um, pastors. And right. they viewed they, and you can even read some of the writings of the founding fathers of America, where they highly esteemed the concept of God. I would say it would be a stretch to say that they were Christian, but I think that they were theistic at at least, and with a very great respect for huh. pastors. Because you got to remember too, a pastor was also the most educated person in the town or the city that he was in most often. Uh, as an aside, do you know what the New Testament might call somebody who's theistic but doesn't believe in Christ or follow him? What would it call? What would it call? I think James might have called him the devil. <laughs> We're not here to debate American history, my friend. We've done that in many other podcasts. We have, it's true. Now, uh, I, I think um, that the question for me of like, are you overestimating what the connection was between uh, the institution of a local community uh, and the, the state of the souls of its members? What do you mean by that? So just simply because the local church uh, runs the administration of a town, uh, keeps records, uh, is leaned upon for certain civic functions, I think it's very difficult to draw a line from that to talk about uh, the gospel effectiveness of the church in that era and time. Do, do, do you track with me? I do track with you. Um, and I would agree with you. I don't think the church is any more or less in peril or more or less successful than it was 2,000 years ago in the sense of we still need the word preached. We still need the sacrament administered, offered. We still need to disciple people and bring them to the knowledge of who Jesus is out of God's grace and through his power. So like that has never changed. And I think that God's spirit sustains the church, not people's strategies or their missional impulse or uh, that the church is in any sort of dire strait now versus when it was a hundred years ago. What I do think has changed is the shifting landscape has changed. That's why I say we live in a brave new world. It's new terrain. It's not worse or better. Um, it, what it is, is it's different. So people once valued the opinion of a pastor 
and now they don't as much. Is that good or bad? Well, some pastors back in the day were really bad. <laughs> right. Some pastors advocated slavery. So, but now their opinion doesn't matter anymore. So it's new terrain. Um, some people viewed um, absolute truth and held to it to such a staunch degree that, that if you even like slightly disagreed with them, you were condemned as a heretic. I mean, we talked about um, John Calvin and Geneva and some of the some of the things that happened right in the wake of the Reformation that were taken. So we did, but I do believe that the, the landscape has shifted, and there used to be a missional. I think that there used to actually be a missional impulse of churches simply because of necessity. Like a good example of this was in Eastport, where Rachel and I used to live in Annapolis. First Baptist Church of Eastport. Did you ever did I ever tell you this about First Baptist Church of Eastport? No, you didn't tell me. Okay, so First Baptist Church of Eastport. Eastport is a fishing town, for those of you who don't know. Um, and it's right across the bridge from downtown Annapolis. So, Ian, what would you say? It's a, half, it's a quarter mile away from where you're sitting as the crow flies? Yeah, pretty much. Like, like, like a 10-minute like walk. Exactly. And, I mean, I used to walk across the bridge, and we used to smoke cigars in Dock Street. Um, so... Uh, First Baptist Eastport was in downtown, right across the bridge from downtown Annapolis. Um, right. Here's what happened after World War II. But uh, about a half a mile away, um, further into Eastport, there used to be, uh, there's a bunch of widows who lost their husbands in World War II. And it, that was such a stretch for people, because most people walked because they lived in the city, that these mothers with their children had a hard time getting to First Baptist Church of Eastport. So what they did was they started another church a half a mile away in the neighborhood. Wow. And our friend Tom Wogamuth lives on the street that that church is on. Oh, really? You know yeah. that brick church there that I'm talking about? I forget the name of it. Oh, really? And that's them. It's this tiny little brick church. So like First Baptist Church of Eastport actually started a church half a mile away after World War II to care for the widows and the orphans who had lost their husbands and fathers. Right, right. Because it's, because it's much easier for the pastor of First Baptist Eastport to just go down the street mm -hmm. than it is for a dozen families to come up the street. Exactly, when you think that most of them didn't have cars back then. Yeah. And they had kids, and mom is trying to figure out how to handle things in the wake of losing her husband. And so they, they, bought, a, they bought a housing lot, and before there's, of course, all these zoning things, they just built a house on a, they built a church right on the, a housing lot. And it's a beautiful old brick building, actually um, in between First Baptist Eastport, in between East, First Baptist Eastport, and where our friend um, um, Jerry Colbert, Colbert? Uh, oh, the, yeah, the yeah, Jerry Colbert, the um, uh, John, West, John Wesley United Methodist. John Wesley, yeah. So it's in between those two churches. So you see, that's an example of the practical aspects of the church is valuable in the community. Um, people are looking to the church for leadership and guidance and help, practically. And they had to have a missional impulse to start more churches. Because practically speaking, people couldn't drive. They didn't have cars. So you had to start it in that. And the pastor would drive, the pastor would commute up to that church and preach them until right. they found a pastor. Wow. Um. So that's the shifting landscape that right. we're just not, I mean, right. now you can have a church that's a mega church 
that people will drive 20, 30, 40 miles even to go to um, because they like it, you know? So, so the whole landscape has shifted to where you don't have to have a missional impulse to have churches, to start churches, and to reach people with the gospel. Um, it's a totally different landscape than it was 60 years ago, partially because of technology, partially because of um, rotation, and partially because of a, of a, I think, a mentality shift. So I actually, I actually like your description much more uh, because I've, I, you know, I, I've heard this, this, uh, this shift uh, to use a sort of slightly more academic word. People call it the post-Christendom shift. Yes. Uh, described very much as a, a loss of salvation mm. or, or a decline of the influence of the gospel in a society. And I think you're being much more shrewd and much more realistic uh, to say that it was never about the gospel's influence in a society uh, because the gospel will always have influence in a society uh, as the spirit wills. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, it's about the spirit of Jesus moving that spreads his church and spreads his gospel. Right. Not about, I mean, we can say that there's practical things that make it easier or harder, but at the end of the day, the spirit, is, the spirit of Jesus is the one that bears the weight and the responsibility of spreading the gospel. Right. So, so, so what, what, you're, what you're describing in your opening sentence then is a shift in a perception uh, around institutions and, and the way and the institutions that intersect with people's lives. Yes. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not even saying that's bad either. I actually don't uh, think it's bad. No, no. I mean, I mean you, you, can't, you can't necessarily... I mean, I mean it's, it's a pointless judgment to make anyway. Yeah. Uh, it, and I'll say this too. Like, there are still churches that operate as a center or as a hub that do wonderful ministry for the gospel. For example, First Baptist Clarksville. A uh, friend of mine, Pastor Larry Riley. Um, wonderful man of God loves Jesus, and at, he's at First Baptist Clarksville, 185 years, and in all of downtown Clarksville, by every stretch of the imagination, um, they're a megachurch. And people Google in Clarksville, and, who are in the military that travel there, and um, I served there for about four or five months on an interim role with their staff, and, uh, and like, they do amazing ministry to military families because they have the resources to do so. To do so, right? And so many people are drawn to that church because it's an in, primarily because it's an institution, right? And right. They, they have good gospel ministry. People come to faith, and they're thriving in the gospel because that church has a hundred and eighty-five year history. So this brave new world. It's only a brave new world, it seems, for some people and not, and not everybody. And not everybody. And that's kind of, kind of one of the points I wanted to get out of this. Uh, the idea that we are in a post-Christian society or a post-Christendom society or even a post-modern society uh, depends largely on your point of view. Yes, but I do say that, that the trajectory is moving to where in 30 years, less and less people are going to Google... First Baptist Church and go to First Baptist Church of Clarksville um, because it's an institution. That's what I believe. I believe the trajectory is moving in that direction, the trajectory of the world, and there are certain parts that we would say that are more um, susceptible to that trajectory and other parts that resist that trajectory. But it's a trajectory nonetheless that we're all going to face with because in 30 years from now, 
you're not going to have as many people that grew up at mom and dad's Baptist church that get moved to a new area and Google First Baptist Church Clarksville and come there and get ministered by them. Right, right. Which, by the way, I will say this too. Pastor Larry at that church is totally has admitted that. And they're actually doing things, more things to reach out to their community and doing more things, missionally speaking, um, to, to reach their neighbors in the city. That makes sense. That makes sense. Um, so I think, I think that people are seeing it, but I think many people feel out of place and out of touch with where the trajectory is going. Most people don't know what to do. And I think most pastors that grew up in tra more um, traditional Southern churches don't quite know how do we handle this brave new world right. in which we are not as respected and in which people don't come because there's a Baptist church on the corner. They don't, they're not drawn to that anymore. So I have, I have you know, two, two, two usual responses to this. The first of which is to kind of say, well, good. <clears throat> so uh, what you could say in response to this declining like cultural or institutional allegiance to Christianity is like, well, good, all those fake nominal, nominal Christians are now leaving our pews and liberating the rest of us to get on with doing like Jesus's real work. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Right, so that's one assessment. Yeah. But on the other hand, I, I also, you know, listen to, you know, a, a sort of the, the, the old European model of Christianity, where um, I think, I think we, we never, you know, ne often never admitted it to ourselves, but we all knew that the majority of people in a community who are connected with the church had a very shaky and ambiguous relationship with their own faith. Yeah. And, this is, and this is why various movements, monastic communities, uh, revivalist groups emerged to further the cause of the church in those times. But the church as an, as an institution was always uh, very patient very patient and forbearing with the, with the members of its community who misunderstood, who uh, did not grasp the faith at a particularly deep level. Um, and I find it a shame to, to jump headlong into a post-Christendom or, dare I say, post-modern mindset where, you know, the church now only really exists and is, is constituted by um, those who have a deep, firm grasping of their own faith and have made professions thereof. Because um, that just seems so, so, in a way, novel and unlike the church. Mm. Yeah. Because uh, the church has a, lot, had a long history of being uh, more inclusive than most people think it is. Yeah. Well, I will say this too. There's a principle in betting if you're a professional better or you gamble, which I'm, I don't, but um, there's something called negative, let me, let me read it to you, it's called negative progression betting. And essentially what that says is if you're losing, you raise the stakes so that you can get back ahead. So essentially if you are playing poker or you're playing something like that, you raise the stakes if you're losing so you can get that money, money back. Does that make sense? 
Right, right, because because in a, because it, when when gambling, you could turn it around at any moment mm -hmm. with the right bet, mm -hmm. the right bet, the right hand, the right thing, change your life. Here's what mainline Protestants did, and this this goes back to actually the split with Anglicanism and the Episcopalian Church, um, uh, is that they made a bet that says if we succumb to culture and water down the message that somehow we will draw people back in to this position of seeing the church as center to their community. And so this is where we got uh, the battle for the Bible, the conservative, uh, th this was the, the conservative movement, the moral majority opposed this other view. Okay, so right. the other view, so the moral majority came out of an opposition and they actually called this the battle for the Bible in the 80s and 90s. And um, it was a big thing with Southern Baptists, actually, massive rifts in, in the Baptist church because of it. And what happened was is that some people said, well, if we water down the message, if we say it's not, we don't have to hold to a biblical view of um, certain, the biblical view of marriage. We don't have to hold to um, uh, believing that the Bible is literal and it actually impacts our life. Um, then we will draw more people. And what it did was it was a failed bet because it failed. And the reason is, is that the church sounded like the culture around it so much that people saw the church as irrelevant. And I think that that's part of why the church is where it's at right now as a whole, because they made mainline Protestants at least um, made a bet that said, if we, if we weaken the message, we'll get more people and they compromise theology, and they compromise mission, and they compromise praxis. Your, and what happened was is we sounded exactly like the culture. Your, your diagnosis is correct, but your, um, the point, well, sorry, your prognosis is correct. I think your diagnosis is off. Uh, I, I, do not, I do not think that there was an intention. No, no, no one wakes up one day and says, you know all those things we believe, let's stop believing them. It doesn't happen that way. You're correct. No. So, so what happened was that uh, I think many Protestant groups flinched because they were, because they were communities that were filled with hypocrites. Mm -hmm. Now, historically speaking, this is nothing new about the church. Yeah. We all know. I'm a, I'm a hypocrite. You're a hypocrite. We're all hypocrites. We're all hypocrites. Yeah. We're all hypocrites. But for some reason, many Protestant groups became very idealistic. And they decided that hypocrisy wasn't good enough anymore. They needed authenticity. Yeah. Uh, it became unsustainable, untenable to keep on like reminding people that they were doing wrong when they wouldn't change their ways mm -hmm. and keep making room for them in their churches. So they decided to do away with the whole stigma of hypocrisy and uh, revise or quieten down some of their teaching. Uh, I think, I think um, uh, because uh, they thought, um, they thought that it was the worst thing ever to be full of, full of hypocrites. Yeah, but what happened was is that they compromised on the gospel. And what the very things that made us protest, the very things that made Protestantism, Protestantism 
the protest that it was, they compromised on it. Jesus dying on the cross for our sins. Biblical view of marriage. The Bible is authoritative for all of life. This was supposed to invite more people into the church. And I think we're going to look back 100 years from now and we're going to say that was a major mistake. Yeah. Because I, what the whole point of the gospel is it's supposed to be countercultural. It's supposed to be the message that is foolishness to the world around us. Right. The Bible says that. And so when we try to, to make it more palatable in such a way that it rejects the essence of the truth of it, what happens is that people find that irrelevant. Yeah. And then they say, well, this has nothing new to offer me than Oprah. Right. So let me turn on Oprah and listen right. to her. I, 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 she's, she's better dressed. And I, you have Deepak Chopper. Who doesn't love Deepak Chopper? Uh, I think there's something deeply ironic in the fact that people would, would rather be peripheral to an organization where they feel like if they get too close to the middle, they might, they might become hypocrites. Yeah. Than they would join an organization that expects very little of them morally. Yeah. Uh, and so I think I, that all plays into it, though. That all plays into it. I'm sorry, you know, I interrupted. Yeah, I, I just think it's just, it, it's, it's an interesting uh, trajectory of the erosion of the theology of, of certain mainline uh, Protestant groups um, and the yeah. fact that they, they, they believe this moving of the goalposts would cause more people to come through them. Yeah. But in reality, it seems that people were alienated. Um, and, you know, many, uh, many faith communities, conservative Baptists, Catholics, particularly uh, conservative Pentecostals, um, readily tolerate and embrace peripheral figures and individuals mm -hmm. whose grasp of faith is and morals are and, uh, yeah. and they do a much better job of tolerating and embracing those people uh, over a long, long period of time through, through forms of engagement, cooperation, community organization. Yeah. Uh, rather than saying, you know what, guys, stop standing on the doorpost. I'm going to like, you know, knock down, knock down the door, make it wider so you, so you can all come in. Yeah. Um, and the data supports this. So it's actually data over the past 30 years we have. Um, and it's based on something called the General Social Survey. Um, data has come out that supports this. Um, if you were to look at data starting in the 90s, um, the people that would profess themselves as Christians on a survey have become less and less. But if you dive into the details, it's actually quite fascinating. So uh, people that would, I, there were many people in the early 90s, 93, 92, I think, is um, where we start to see the shift. But there are many people in the early 90s that ident identify themselves as Christians. But if you were to dial in, there were other questions that they would not answer, that they would answer that would indicate that they weren't Christians. Even. So they would say, I identify as a Christian, I self-identify as a Christian. But they would ask, is Jesus the only way to God? And they would say, no. Right. Or I don't know. Or do you regularly attend a faith community? Right. They would say no. And so the percentage of people that answered, yes, I'm a Christian, and yes, I yes, I'm born again. I had a like you know they have to have generalized questions. We would we might disagree on the nuance of it, but like I profess I'm a born again Christian. There was a moment in time where I trusted in Christ as my Savior. I've repented. Yeah, like those things was about thirty percent. Right. But 
the culture of I'm a Christian, there's about 60, 60% of the population said, yes, I'm a Christian. Right. But there's only about 30% that actually said, yes, I'm a Christian, and yes, I believe in Jesus is the only way to salvation, and yes, I believe in the Bible is true completely in its original manuscripts. Like, like, like there's only about 30%. So there's all this data that's coming out that says Christianity is in decline, um, and we're seeing from a, like a mainline Protestant perspective many less people are identifying as Christians. Right. But actually the same percentage, there's like one or two percentage points off, the same percentage, it's about 30% of people in America that still claim, yes, I'm a Christian, yes, I believe in Jesus, yes, I believe the Bible is authoritative for my life, and I regularly right. attend a Christian service. Right, right. So, so at the end of the day, the sky is not falling on evangelicalism. And the data shows that it's not. It just there's a per, the perception of people. It's that thirty percent of people that claimed to be Christians that didn't actually believe are just becoming more honest now. Yeah, yeah. And I think personally, um, and some contemporaries, some some people that have a much wider audience than you and I will ever have, believe this too. That that's not necessarily a bad thing. Right. They're just being more honest about what they believe. Right. But because of that cultural Christianity shift. Um, there's becoming less and less people that would self-identify as Christians that would come to church occasionally, that would tithe occasionally. And so we still see pockets of that in the South, but in 30 years, church attendance of nominal Christians is going to become less and less. Right, right. Um, but um, in, in, in your neck of the woods, in the, in the Bible Belt, there are some, I mean... You know, I'm going to show my hand here a little bit and call them cloyingly desperate and pathetic attempts to entice more and more people to attend worship services. <laughs> You're a little bit more bold than I would be, but go right. on. Right. So what's different about this to the uh, mainliners uh, altering their... Uh, their, their criterion for what a Christian life means. I think it's the general philosophy that says if we, if we have, um, I think it's a more attractional model. We've talked about this before. It's, it's uh, the, the, the philosophy behind that is if we have a contemporary service with contemporary music, with a topical message, and small groups for every area of life, um, then we'll draw people in the doors of the church and they'll come to know who Jesus is. I think that I, I, I think that what you call pathetically desperate is a model of church that's worked in the past to some degree and is still working here in the South. Uh, it has worked surely only in so far as it is created large institutions. Well, I disagree, and here's why. Because I've been to churches that are 10,000 people, that have laser light shows, that have fog machines, that have super, like, it's like a concert, and they have topical messages. But guess what? People what? still come to faith in genuine faith, repenting, believing the gospel, saying, I repent of my sins, and I believe in Jesus. And it still works. It still works in the South. So, to bring it back to you then, why are you 
uh, why are you planting where you're planting, and why are you do, why are you doing something so different? Well, and here's why: around 75% of the people that live in Clarks Clarksville is north of the city of Nashville. Um, about 75% of the people that live in Clarksville are not from Clarksville. Okay. So they're from other areas of the country. And around 75%, and there's another statistic that 75%, around 75% of the people in Clarksville don't go to church on Sunday. Now, we can debate what does that mean? Do they have to go to church to be saved? No. Like, we're not going to go to extremes. That's just fact. Fact is, 75% of people live in Clarksville aren't from Clarksville. 75% of people in Clarksville don't go to church. And I think those numbers are correlative. Okay. Um, I think that eventually the more attractional model of church will not be as effective as more and more people are growing up in a, in a context where they're not growing up in the context of a church. And they don't see the church as a safe place. And so I want to reach the people that live in Clarksville that would never step foot inside of a church that are not attracted to a more attractional model of church. Right. Whereas if you build a big building, you have a great kids ministry, um, and you have a topical sermons and good, really high quality production, you have live streaming, you have... Um, those things, I want to reach the person that would never step foot inside of those churches. Okay, okay. So, so I you... think there's a space in Clarksville for that. Okay. I think I think there's a space in Clarksville for that type of church. So you are planning a church in Clarksville, firstly, because um, the First Baptist model of being the pillar and um, you know infrastructure of a society. The church holding that position is increasingly less um, possible or plausible. Yes. I believe that it is it is increasingly less plausible. That's a great that's a great way to put it. And then secondly, um, you know, you you're also planting a church which is unlike you know, ignite or area or grace abounding ocean international. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. That needs to be the name of the church, actually. We're going to change it. Grace Abounding Ocean International Bishop. Right. Uh, so you're, you're, also, you're also starting a church which is unlike, unlike this. Yeah. Um, you know, the fire church, the furnace. Um, <laughs> that, no, no, you got to go to the river church, which is over the bridge church, which, <laughs> goes, through, which goes through the forest church. <laughs> and then you come to the city church. There's literally a church in Nashville called the local church. Okay. And then there's another church. There's a church called the city church. And then there's another church called church of the city church. So it becomes very confusing. I'm going to go to city church or church of the city. It's uh, there's a lot of different names. So, but here's the thing, Ian, let me be clear. Like the pastors in Clarksville, I consider them my friends. Yes. I love them. And I think that they're doing good gospel ministry that's reaching people for Jesus. Like there's a church called LifePoint and it would have, they have a really high quality production. Their pastor's guy named Mike Burnett. He's a friend of mine. Um, I've met with him for coffee. He's been very supportive of Rachel and I, um, just like Pastor Larry has at, at First Baptist Clarksville. Um, there's another church, uh, more 
um, stable, traditional, older church. Not older in the sense of, of people, but older in the sense of they're more established than Hilden. And the pastor, Larry Robertson, I've met with. And um, those guys are like, they're nice. And they're doing good gospel ministry in the city. And I don't ever want to plant a church, and I don't think anyone should ever plant a church that is a reaction to what other churches aren't doing. Right. I think that's unhealthy. I think it's unbiblical. I think it's I think it creates a spirit of competition. And I actually think that it's more divisive than helpful. So my friends in Clarksville are doing good ministry. Right. And I want to be very clear on that. Like, um, I don't think that we're doing anything better than they are. Right. I think what we're doing is something different. Okay. That's going to reach a different group of people. Okay. Okay. Uh, that makes that that makes that makes a lot of sense. And I think I think also um, you are. I I will I will I will maintain that um, I I think it's still. I think I think I think the jury's still out on, <laughs> on, on over whether the post Christendom or post modern trend uh, will continue or, or whether it will plateau. Well, and I will say this too. Postmodernism is going the way of the dodo. Yeah. Um, and I think that because I think people recognize the, the moral ambiguity that postmodernism creates doesn't resonate with our experiences. Right. So, so my experience of feeling injustice, my experience of feeling like there is a God out there, who is he? Like, there has got to be some sort of supreme being. Even with people that would not maybe acknowledge the God of the Bible, there's a spiritual curiosity that people feel right. that is antithetical to postmodernism. And I don't think that postmodernism stands the test of time because of that. And I actually think it goes back to the Imago Dei. It's like we all have been created in God's image that has been marred and broken with the fall. Mm -hmm. But there's still a sense of there's, a, there's something inside of me that, that, that makes me long for something out there. What is this thing? So I've noticed the trend become, well, I'm an agnostic. That used to, that used to be the thing like five, six years ago in Annapolis. Like with Johnny's, a lot of times it was like, I'm an agnostic. I just don't know. Like who can ever know? There's no truth. There's no absolute. So now it's like, no, I'm spiritually curious. There's something out there. There's a higher being out there. Right. And who is he? And there's a reluctance to say it's the God of the Bible, but there's m most people in our culture still experience a degree of spiritual curiosity. Right, right. And, 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 and I'm sure smarter people than us have been able to identify the reasons for exactly that trend. And we can link to those articles because I can't even begin to process through how that trend is going. Right, right. Uh, you tell your, um, you tell your, uh, in your prospectus, you say that Jesus never instructed his disciples to plant a church. Correct. So why are you doing it? Because Jesus tells his disciples to make, Jesus tells his disciples, go make disciples. And so the church planning strategy that you see in the New Testament, and I'm just going to turn to Acts 16, because that's the clearest that's the clearest perspective of it, is what does Paul do? Paul wants to go. He gets the Macedonian call. He wants to go to Asia. God redirects him to Macedonia. First city in Macedonia is Philippi. Philippi is actually very similar to Clarksville, and since it has a lot of expats, 
it has a lot of um, ex-military that retired to Philippi. And so uh, it was a military, it was like a, it was like their version of free military defense. They'll give you a pension and they send you to Philippi. And uh, Philippi was exempt from taxes, so government taxes from the Romans, to inspire people who retired from the Roman legions to move there. Okay? Right. So, and the deal was if there was ever an attack on Rome, they would have to go through Philippi first. Right. You got a bunch of military trained people that are just hanging out, working, doing normal jobs, but they're motivated to stay there because it's free of tax. They got good pension. And, uh, and if there was ever an attack, that city would be the first to be attacked and they would be able to defend the city. Right. Right. So Paul goes there. What's the first thing he does? He goes to the river that's out front. There's a bunch of women that are gathered there. Um, there wasn't enough people in the city to have a synagogue. Right. So it's so, thoroughly Gentile territory. Yes. Yeah, so, but there is a group of people that were meeting by the river outside of the city to pray. Lydia was one of them. Right. Silver of purple dot. So Lydia um, meets Paul, ha comes to faith in Jesus. Boom. First person. Making disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Then you move into the city. Paul gets annoyed by that little girl that follows him around, shouting his name, and he gets so annoyed he turns around and, and casts the demon out of her, right? Right. Boom. Implied that she comes to faith. Second person coming to faith in faith. Second disciple being. Third one, they get thrown in jail. Earthquake happens. All the jail cells open. Jailer's going to kill himself because he's going to get killed by the Romans. Paul says, don't. We're still here. Jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Right. Comes to faith. Boom. Whole household comes to faith. Boom. Paul leaves. But then he sends Timothy back there. I think he sent Timothy or Epaphroditus. I forget who it was. And then all of a sudden, you go back, fast forward a couple of years, a church is formed. Right. So you make disciples first. Then you form a church out of the disciples that are being made. And that's a microcosm of the whole book of Acts, where that happens over and over and over. But Paul goes into a city, people come to faith, right. churches then get formed. And then that's why when we have the prison epistles um, that Paul writes to then instruct these churches. So he writes the book of Philippians to the saints that are in Philippi. And that's when he's giving them instruction on how to form their church. So I think the biblical model of church planning is you go into a city or a region, and you help introduce people to the true Jesus. And when they meet the true Jesus and they become disciples, those disciples form together into what we now know as a church. Okay. Okay. Now, you need people to start that. Like, it was Paul. I think Luke was with him, if I'm not mistaken. Um, it, was, it was Barnabas wasn't with him then, was it? It was Paul and Peter that got thrown in jail. That was their second missionary journey. And that was no, after no, no, Paul and Peter never went, to, never went on a journey together. No, you're right. So was it Barnabas? Was that before they split over John Mark or after? I thought it was after they split over John Mark. And I don't know, but it wasn't, it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't really Paul and Peter. Okay, so it was Paul and um, Luke, for sure, I believe, and a few other people were Christians, right? They're followers of Jesus. They're disciples. They go into a region and they make disciples, and then that becomes a church. That is how I would love to plant a church in Clarksville, which is taking a few Christians who are missional, who are apostolic, that want to reach their friends and neighbors for Jesus, um, and form them together. 
and say, we're going to reach our friends and neighbors for Jesus. So the bulk of the church gets formed, not from Christians that are unhappy with their church that they're going to. And they want to come to the cool, hip, new thing with a worship leader that wears a white belt and a scarf in the summer with a weird haircut and drinks home roasted coffee. Right. Um, it's, no, you go into a community and you get a few Christians who love Jesus and want to start something. And then you use that impulse to start something as the as part of your motivation to reach your friends and neighbors for Jesus. So you see church as... Um or organized forms of church, um, you know, nonprofits, buildings, etc. You know, groups who have uh, a, agreed upon polity and law, for example. Uh, you see this as an accessory to the ministry of making disciples, as a consequence of the ministry of making disciples. It's a byproduct of disciple making. Okay. So, what does Jesus mean when he says to Saint Peter, uh, upon Peter's profession of faith that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, uh, that you are, uh, you are Peter, and upon Peter, Petros rock, and upon this Petros rock, I will build my church. Well, the question is, what's the object of Jesus is talking about in that statement? Is he talking about Peter? Or is he talking about the truth that Peter professed the verse prior? Right. I think he's talking about the truth that Peter professed the verse prior and is using his name as a word ploy or as like a, as a double entendre. Mm -hmm. So he's saying upon this rock, meaning I am Jesus, you are the savior. <laughs> you are the Christ, right? Upon this truth is how the church will be built. So, so I think he uses Peter's name saying, hey, Peter, based on what you just said, I'm the Christ. That is what's actually going to build the church. So Jesus is actually responsible for building his church. And the foundation of the church is the reality that Jesus is God and he is who he says he is. I, I think there's some problems with that because that's a very novel interpretation of that. No, it's not a novel oh, thing. No. I think I... Commentators for hundreds of years have argued about what exactly that means. And most commentators, at least that I've turned to, have said it's a wordplay on Peter's name, saying upon this truth, right. this this rock, I will build my church. Yes, and actually, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. And if you turn and look, they were in a location, and in it's not it's not coming to my mind where they were, but it was essentially it was a temple to the god Hades that was built into a rock that was actually a temple to a false god and it was the false god of hades that was in the backdrop of jesus's state so the gates of hell was actually right but the the that was actually right behind jesus as he was talking geographically that's where they were so what is jesus doing when he hands to his apostles uh particularly peter uh the keys of the kingdom uh the power to bind and loose so what, what, what I'm getting at here is that um, maybe the positioning of the church in the mission of God is slightly different. That uh, there is a community of, of disciples who are given a unique authority to, um, to initiate 
and teach and baptize new members of that community. So there must be such a thing as a church uh, before there are disciples. Because becoming a disciple is not an assent to an idea uh, or um, uh, a changing of one's lifestyle. It does include those things. But it is primarily the entrance into a new community. Yes. Uh, and that community is safeguarded uh, originally by the apostles. And, uh, and then through the, through the centuries of Christian tradition, uh, the clergy um, and the set-apart people uh, who follow them. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I don't, I don't think the views are diametrically opposed. I'd, I'd agree with what you're saying. Okay. Because at the end of the day, like, the church was formed in Acts 2 when the Holy Spirit fell. Right. Um, it, it, you went from disciples following the way of the true master, right? They're following the way of Jesus. Right. Um, and then they're in the upper room and they're praying and the Holy Spirit descends on the day of Pentecost. And thousands of people come to faith in Acts 2. That's the church. Right. And so there is no other church. There's one church. Right. One holy Catholic apostolic church. Right. Um, so there's only one church. When you become a believer, you become a part of that universal church. Right. So we're not starting a new universal church, Big C Church. We're starting a local expression of that Big C Church in Clarksville. Okay. So there's local, church local, church global. Right. So yes, in that sense, yes, the church global is protected by God's spirit. It's expanded by God's spirit. And anywhere where, where people come together in worship of Jesus, that can be, um, I would say that's not a local church, but I'd say that's an expression of the universal church. But I think uh, then we're talking about a, the difference between a universal and a local church. And actually, even most local churches come from another local church, right? Right. Like, we're potentially getting sent out of a church in Nashville, and we're still working through the details of that. But I hope and pray by God's grace we'll be launched out of another church to form right. another local church. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, you know I, I think the, the, the point I'm trying to get at is that there is a, uh, a human institution which is indispensable to the the disciple-making process. I agree with that completely. Uh, that's, why, that's why so much of the, Paul's instructions to the church of Philippi and the first and second Timothy and Titus are all about church polity and elders and deacons and laying on hands and all that stuff is the practical nuts and bolts of the byproduct of disciple-making, which is churches. Right, right. Yeah, that makes a lot, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So you are uh, planting in the Bible Belt, where there are already 10,000 churches. And yeah. you are planting because, um, you know, you do not see, uh, you know, church being uh, the institution that runs a community as necessarily being, being plausible or realistic uh, today. Yeah, in uh, 30 years, probably. Yeah. And, and also... Um, making worship services more exciting uh, or more entertaining uh, will not um, cause people to turn their heads anymore. Not as much. Now, again, I will say, and I want to qualify it when we talk about it, that I love the pastors of those churches. 
and they do good gospel ministry. And they're my friends, and I support them. Um, I have a different philosophy of ministry. And that's part of what I think the unique thing we can bring to the table in Clarksville. Um, but I listened to a podcast from John Tyson. Actually, Joel Pasmina, our friend who's planting a church in Columbia Heights, which actually, let's do a plug for him right now. Joel's church is starting September 10th. Yep. Um, which Encount is awesome. Encounter DC. Cannot wait. Rachel and I love him so much. He has been such a friend. We texted today, actually. Joel and I were texting back and forth today, talking about uh, how, how the plans are for his church. So, like, um, the pastors of churches that are attraction are my friends. Yep. And, like, we just have a different philosophy that's, in my mind right now, that's where I see the trajectory of the church going, which is why yep. we ascribe to what the, this, this philosophy of, of ministry that's a little bit less attractional, trying to get people to come in, and a little bit more missional, us trying to be sent out. Yeah. But um, good godly churches are reaching people for Jesus that yep. are doing just that. Yeah. And they're in Clarksville, and they're my friends, and they're doing good work. Yeah. And, I, and I'm going to go. And I'm going to go on record as saying, like, I'm not confident yet that your philosophy of ministry uh, will become um, as dominant as you think it might. So we'll we'll we'll, we'll, we'll have to see um, how the culture shifts. Um, over the next 20 years to determine whether that's going to be the case. Absolutely. I also think, too, it depends on the where you are in the church planning process. Like, if you're just starting to plant a church, um, you're going to probably be more missional. And after your church reaches year five, statistics are very clear. 90% of your growth in the first five years of a church plant is through conversions. Right. People that formerly didn't know Jesus come to know Jesus and are baptized in your church. 90%, that's average, of a, of, a, of a sustaining church plant beyond five years. But after year five, you're probably going to become more attraction. And I estimate that that redeeming hope will be. I estimate that more people from the culture around the church as it grows will want to come to it if it becomes, if by God's grace it stays past year five, and I hope it does, um, but if we get to year five, ministry is going to have to change. Well, I think that's very wise and shrewd of you. Uh, I, think you've, I think you've given some good answers. Um, I'm going to have to uh, uh, head off in a moment. Sure. Let's talk about the cigar. Let's go back to the cigar for a minute. What do you yep. think? It's been a fantastic smoke. See, I've, I've kind uh, of almost yeah. right down to this nub. <laughs> right. Um, what are the notes that you're feeling? What are the, what are the things that you're tasting? At this point... Oranges, a little bit of citrus, um, like nuts. Yeah, I'm getting a little bit of nutty. And um, that bitterness I was afraid of on my lips totally went away. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't have any bitterness even from the beginning. So yeah, thoroughly enjoyable smoke. Uh, would buy again. Delicious. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting like milk chocolate um, oh, yeah? out of this. Um, I'm getting, yeah, I'm getting milk chocolate, even a little cream. Um, pepper is completely gone. There's no pepper in them anymore at all. Yep. You're right about that. And uh, yeah, and I'm getting a little, I'm looking at our flavor wheel here. I'm getting a little bit of like almond cashew. 
Yeah, you know, that, that, that almond thing is totally on the tip of my tongue right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really good. I mean, I'll say, Gurkha, I was actually talking with the guy. He actually waved at me um, when he left. But I was talking with the, the guy who runs the cigar shop, and he uh, he mentioned that Gurkha was super inconsistent up to a couple years ago. Okay. You go on blogs and you read about it, you buy a box of them, and, like, first two would be great and the third one would be terrible. And they're kind of getting a bad reputation because they're really expensive cigars. They're more expensive cigars. And they actually changed and started doing a lot of quality assurance stuff and getting much better with how they um, with how they do it. So, right. Did we have any comments? Um, anybody live right now? There's one viewer. Oh, we had two viewers at one point. No comments, though. But, it's glad to, right. but, but glad to have you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here, you creepers. Um, Josh, I think you did really well answering my questions. And, I appreciate uh, the opportunity to talk about it, man. Yeah, yeah. So uh, can you tell us more about uh, what, uh, your church, how we can find out about it online? Yeah, you can go to redeeminghope.org. We actually had someone donate that domain to us, which is pretty amazing. Um, a guy named Herb Sutherland had it for many years and didn't use it. And uh, when he found, I called him because uh, his name was on public record. And so I was like, I kind of made a joke when I left him a voicemail and said, hey, um, I found your name on the internet. And uh, would you be willing to, to sell your domain? And he actually gave us the domain. So if you want to find out more about what we're doing, you can go to redeeminghope.org. And uh, yeah, we also have our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash redeeminghopetn. Great. Great. Well, great to talk with you today. Wonderful to talk with you, my friend. And man, I've missed this. So you got to make sure it's not as, as long between the times that we do this again. Right, right, right. So I'll see you again in nine months, yeah? <laughs> but let's make it not nine months. Let's, let's, try to, let's try to do something in the next few weeks. Maybe we can bring a guest on, too. Maybe. But if I had any friends, I would, but I don't. Oh, <laughs> uh, you gotta, always got a friend in me. And... You got a friend in me. You got a friend in me. Toy Story reference, hashtag Disney reference at Smoking Issues. Right, absolutely. Well, All right, guys. Thank thanks you very for much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.